0: (laughs) Uh you're listening to returns on investment brought to you by impact alpha hello and welcome to impact alpha's roi returns on investment an ongoing conversation about how capital is being deployed in pursuit of a better world From New York, I'm your host, Brian Walsh, head of impact for the progressive financial services company, LiquidNet. I'm joined by my co-host, David Bank, editor-in-chief of Impact Alpha, who comes to us from San Francisco. Hi, David. Hi, Brian. And Imogen Rose-Smith, a senior writer at Institutional Investor Magazine. She's also in New York. Hi, Imogen. Hi, Brian. Today, we're going to be talking about investing with a gender lens. Now, David, you recently sat down with Suzanne Beagle, a longtime entrepreneur, angel investor, and activist. She's chief catalyst for The Women Effect, which is a network of philanthropists, investors, fund managers, those who are deploying investment capital with a positive effect on women and girls. Let's go to that interview.
1: respond to women effect or gender lens investing it can be called a number of things but the idea is how do we invest our investment capital to have a positive effect on women and girls and how do we invest to recognize that investing in women is smart Um, and that can be taken from a number of different angles so one is the classic invest in women entrepreneurs women entrepreneurs are typically underfunded they have lack of access to capital Whether they're high-growth, high-tech women entrepreneurs, whether they're women entrepreneurs doing groundbreaking things with social impact in emerging markets, there is a sort of body of evidence that says, get capital into the hands of women entrepreneurs and good things will happen. So that's one lens. Now, take that lens off, put on another lens, which is uh, looking at products and services that positively benefit and affect the lives of women and girls. So it might be a male-led business, but that is in an area uh, that is a gendered domain of products and services. Whether it's, you're talking about sanitary pads, whether you're talking about access to clean water, whether you're talking about econ- e-commerce for something, um, it could be that it's male-led, but the fact that it is looking at the market opportunity around women and girls, looking at the challenges that women and girls disproportionately have that can be solved with a business solution, that's that second lens of thinking about products and services. Right. Now, take that lens off and put another one on, which is really companies that really demonstrate gender equity in ownership, in leadership, in supply chain, in distribution channels. So it might be that it's not a woman entrepreneur. It might be that the products and services are not, in effect, gendered, but it might be that the business doing something very normal has a terrific story about women's employment, or it has a terrific story about women's ownership, or a business that is uh, dependent and taking advantage of the opportunities for smallholder farmers that are substantially women. So where you can look at ownership, management, leadership, and who is being positively affected, that's that third lens of gender equity.
2: So it's not gender lens investing, it's gender lenses investing?
1: Yes. Um, I would also say that there's a fourth lens which uh, maybe some people are speaking less about, which is really thinking about, Companies that were developed to really address a specific urgent human rights or social justice issue that disproportionately affects women and girls. So if you think about slavery and trafficking, if you think about violence against women, or women's access to land, which uh, is a much more prevalent issue in emerging markets than in the U.S., there are businesses that are being set up to very specifically address those issues and a great example would be a, a nonprofit that is rescuing women and girls out of slavery and trafficking. They're training them in high end jewelry making skills, and now they're launching a business. That business only really exists because they really wanted to address that one specific issue around slavery and trafficking. So this is kind of a a fourth lens that you could think about.
2: But just like, that's a great example. So it it only exists because their original intent was to find employment and alternatives for women coming out of uh, trafficking and slavery. They created a business that they can generate some revenues from to create these jobs, but you're saying it's not primarily a high-end jewelry business.
1: The business, right. the, The purpose of the business is... To really create that employment opportunity and a revenue stream, which by the way can then go back to support rescuing more girls. And in
2: this case, were you talking about it as a nonprofit or a for-profit company? So the
1: so the new business is a for-profit company. The original entity is a nonprofit, and by the way, the nonprofit owns part of the for-profit. So there are new structures that are being created around some of these things, where you can also think about who benefits, where's the ownership, and in the case of the investment, who's got a role in governance.
2: So would the investors in the new for-profit company be investing because they want to help women coming out of trafficking, or would they be investing because they think this high-end jewelry business is a great business?
1: I think their primary motivation is because they want to help women and girls coming out of slavery and trafficking, because there are any number of high-end jewelry businesses that you can invest in. I think they're coming with that motivation of, I want to really make a positive social impact and use finance as a tool for social change, in that case, around an urgent human rights issue. Now, you could also say, well, what's on the front end where you would disrupt getting women into a traffic situation in the first place? That some people would say, I really wanna work on that part and I wanna look at the fisheries industry, which has a large role in trafficking. I wanna look at the garment industry. I wanna look at any number of places where there's a sort of big pool of people being trafficked. But someone else could say, you know what? I also really care about what happens afterwards and where are the business opportunities that can come from also saying that's a very dedicated, committed workforce. This is their life. Um, And you may find financial outperformance because having a loyal, committed, excellent workforce that you've trained um, could outcompete another business. So there are these other subsidiary effects. Even if your initial motivation was, I want to do something good for women and girls, part of what we're really looking to demonstrate, and people who are investing here, Uh, looking to demonstrate is where can you also see financial outperformance because you've paid attention to women and girls in a particular role in the value chain.
2: Some people think the women effect is that sort of outperformance part of it Mm -hmm. that all other things being equal find companies that are led by women, serve women and girls, have gender equity throughout the organization and that that will actually give you some quote alpha returns compared to 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 a business that didn't take those things into account.
1: Yes, and whether you're looking at gender-balanced teams, whether you're thinking about the market opportunities that are being created because women are coming into more wealth, there's an emerging middle class in emerging markets, uh, women are having more agency and power over purchasing decisions, which they already have significant agency and power over purchasing decisions. So looking at the market opportunity, looking at, the again, the employee base, the supply chain, Uh, There's evidence that franchisees, women franchisees in emerging markets for particular uh, kinds of businesses are outperforming their male counterparts. They're more committed, they're more reliable, and they're paying attention in a different way because this is their household sustainability.
2: You called out some of these sort of larger macro kind of trends, and some of them are quite powerful, like w- women's control over sort of household spending and therefore what they spend it on, or just the rising middle class generally, which is also then dispor- disproportionately women rising into greater economic empowerment. There's a, a, a seismic shift underway, isn't there?
1: Yeah, and I think that there are some uh, visionary financial services firms, for example, who are paying attention to this, and corporates that are paying attention to this and saying, as you have this rising middle class... As you have more capital in the hands of women, what will they choose to spend that on? And they'll choose access to energy, access to mobile devices, access to refrigeration. If you're in the business of, for example, selling hard goods uh, then you'd, and refrigeration, you'd want to be paying attention to where is there an increase in energy access. And if you are in the insurance business, you might want to be paying attention to where are where are the microinsurance opportunities and there were and then past microinsurance where are the insurance opportunities as people start to have one level of stability women will tend to look at what's the next level of st- stability for my family um, and so people who are watching the trends can really see market opportunities by paying attention to women
2: now as any trend that gets to be well-known, there's a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon now of the women effect, um, not all of them necessarily with the best interests of women at, at, at heart. And, Maybe even with the best interest, there's sometimes unintended consequences. So how do you sort of parse out all the multiple layers of, of, of change that, that happens when you do something at this scale?
1: I think we need to all get better at being systems thinkers. I think um, that whether you are diligencing an investment or whether you are looking at an individual investment or whether you're looking at a fund or whether you're looking at a financing scheme in a bank, for example, what are the unintended consequences? Who are the stakeholders? You almost want to take a, you do want to take a human centered design approach to looking at this um, and say, who are all the stakeholders in this picture? Where are they coming into the system? Where are they going out of the system? Who's affected? Uh, And say, uh, what else should we be doing to mitigate the potential effects? And how does that vary by country? How does that vary by rural versus urban? How does it vary by, um, again, base of the pyramid versus emerging middle class versus upper class? So to really do intelligent market segmentation. By the way, what gender specialists and the women's human rights community and those people working with women on the ground in emerging markets uh, on grassroots social change, they know a lot about this. And there are research firms who have been looking at women for many, many years who have not been part of the conversation around finance. And so part of the opportunity is to also be paying attention to who's at the table when we're designing new investment vehicles, when we're diligencing investment vehicles, when we're thinking about where to deploy capital to have the biggest positive effect.
2: Now, I promised I would let you uh, tell us about the new venture women effect itself. So what what are you aiming to do with that?
1: Thank you. I think right now... We're uh, we're building a new field, and we're in a siloed set of marketplaces. It's not easy for people to find investable options that have a gender lens, whether that is in public equities, whether that is in direct early-stage deals, and anywhere in between. And one of the things that people want is they want to be able to find co-investors, they want to be able to find things to invest in, they want to develop their strategy, and they want to be able to really collaborate to maybe create new investable vehicles that meet their objectives so this curated network is for investors philanthropists and those who are influencing the deployment of capital so it could be fund managers it could be wealth advisors or philanthropy advisors to collaborate to move more capital with more velocity with more strategic intent towards a gender lens and towards the women effect.
2: Thank you Suzanne. Thank you.
0: David, that was a really compelling conversation that you just had with Suzanne Beagle making the case for gender lens investing. Imogen, uh, I, I think that Suzanne made a pretty convincing case that gender lens investing is the right thing to do. Do you think she made a good case that it's also the smart thing to do?
3: I think there are many cases to be made that it's a smart thing to do. You know, I think that the stuff around sort of, you know, particularly like the demographics in emerging markets where women, you know, are play an active role in the economy and the ability to harness that. Similarly, you know, and where as well, sorry, they are, you know, they're often in charge of the, households, the household and therefore have a vested interest in certain, certain things. That is clearly a trend and it's clearly a trend that investors are grasping onto. Similarly as well, the sort of the the rise of the female consumer, both in terms of emerging markets and also in sort of domestic markets that you're seeing a growing sophistication around the possibilities of the women consumer and that market, which, you know, you would think would be saturated by this point, but there, there is still a long way to go.
2: Well, Imogen, just to be clear, you're talking in the emerging markets case, what people say is, you know, women will spend on health education, uh, other good things, whereas the men with the money will spend on gambling, prostitution, and yeah. alcohol. Is that what you're talking about?
3: Yeah, and then beyond that, though, there's also the sort of like, as you get an emerging middle class, right? As you have, you know, let's say more young women in the workforce, they will spend on X, Y, Z, right? So you could look at, you know, China and the rise of sort of like online fashion sites, that kind of thing. So it's both an out of poverty story and an emerging middle class story. Where you lose like the institutional investor is when you start talking about these social justice and human rights issues. You lose me when you start saying, well, you know, people are going to invest in a jewelry company because they want it to do do well and help women and it happens to be good. That is where the philanthropy part of impact investing and the finance part of impact investing have a really tough time sitting together and it just turns institutional investors off and I think it's a problem because so many other parts of the gender lens narrative are important and are important to institutional investors that the sort of instinct of the traditionally not-for-profit community that has kind of morphed into the for-profit impact community is to kind of lead with these sort of compelling, you know, sort of heartstring narratives, but in order to make the wider case and in order to sort of bring the bigger audience to the table and continue the conversation into areas such as income inequality across the board, diversity at corporations. Income inequality at asset management firms, which is a huge issue, like you need all those players at the table and it's very hard to keep them in the social justice conversations, which is not to say those conversations aren't worth worth having. I think that you have a much smaller audience that believes they're investing conversations because they're not. You might be choosing to sort of give money and get money back, but it's much more program related investing than it is a market conversation.
2: The argument that, that Suzanne and others are making is that, in fact, the smart investing part of this is just a correlation that any investor could see, just like they could see other kinds of correlations, you know, women on boards, women in leadership, women represented through the workforce, and then women as as consumers, possibly women as borrowers, that those kinds of businesses tend to outperform separate from any social justice component, just like if you were going to make a loan, who's more likely to repay it?
3: Yeah, and those arguments are compelling, but they are compelling from the social justice conversation. I think that from a institutional perspective, you kind of have to unbundle the two, because Institutions, again, still uncomfortable with this idea that sort of my personal feelings around inequality have a role in the investment office.
2: Well, I agree with that, but I'm thinking that, in fact, you know, one of the definitions of an, of a market edge is knowing something that's not yet priced into the market. If institutional investors or any investors are still shying away from women effect or gender lens type investments. And in fact, the data would show that those kinds of investments or investments made through a gender lens tend to outperform. Then you've got one of the rare examples of a true alpha opportunity here where, uh, where women at, but also other investors can, can get in on things that are not yet generally understood by the market as a whole. So maybe these institutional investors by shying away are missing out on an opportunity.
3: Totally, and I think I think that's very much the case, but I think you also have to be careful about what data we're talking about, right? I think it's very easy, for example, to band around studies that say, well, you know, studies show that women workplaces do better, right? You have to really look at what you're talking about. So for example, if you wanna talk about like investing, there's a lot, a lot of people will say, well, you know, there are studies that say, you know, women are better investors. They're like more cautious about taking risk. A lot of the time it's nonsense, right? And what is driving that data? I think the reason that you see diverse boards doing better is precisely because you have a diversity of opinion and a diversity of experience there. And having women on boards is part of that. It doesn't mean that women are inherently better at being board members or they make better decisions. It's about diversity. And if, in fact, we had total equality, you'd see less of an edge, right? Like all kinds of alpha, it goes away.
2: True, it's a time-limited opportunity here. You've got to get in while while women are undervalued, so to speak, uh, and then you can actually fairly value them and you've got an edge. Once this is all well understood, that, that edge won't won't be there anymore.
0: Right, but, but I think it's, it's important to also clarify, Suzanne was speaking about a range of things here, so and the, the various lenses. So it's not just gender lens, but gender lenses investing. And so I think that we need to better understand the data around the ultimate financial performance uh, of of these types of investments and these approaches to investments, and that's where it gets at beyond just making this the right thing to do or the morally compelling thing to do, but making this the the smart thing to do in, in the sense of this is a good fiduciary responsibility. Uh, lens to bring to your investing. And so I think that th- th- in the different aspects that Suzanne was speaking about, women as investors, women as board members, women as business managers, or looking at uh, companies that serve women as consumers, I think we have to look at each one of those and see what does the data say about this? Now, are women better investors? Are, is it better to have more women on boards? Is it better to have women as entrepreneurs or business managers? Can you outperform by focusing on enterprises that serve women as primary consumers? And so understanding, I think for each one of these, there's going to be a different set of data that's going to tell you different different things. And I think we we don't have enough data right now, or I, I haven't seen enough data, uh, and certainly Suzanne hasn't presented enough data to show that uh, this does make it the, the right thing to do uh, from a fiscal perspective.
2: We do have on Impact Alpha now a section called Gender Lenses, plural, for exactly the reason you just described. And in fact, one of the pieces that's up there is an article again by Suzanne Beagle, uh, describing her own sort of journey to train herself to think through all these sort of myriad levels of complexity in the, in the investment decisions through her own portfolio. And there's also a bunch of other uh, reports and, and, and starting to be a body of literature around this data, as you say, Brian.
0: I think that's very well and good for, for philanthropists and angel investors and people of that sort. But how, how long until it becomes something that institutional investors would take seriously as an investment approach?
3: I mean, look, institutional investors are already taking gender and diversity seriously. um, But they're coming at it typically from a policy standpoint, right? So, you know, New York City Retirement Fund a couple of months ago, probably more than that by now, rolled out a proposal saying that they wanted all of their asset managers to have diversity. Now, we can have a conversation about whether or not that is a good idea. Um, but what they are really pushing their managers to take these diversity questions seriously. And you're seeing, for example, on the, the side of private equity firms, you know, you're starting to see them think about this both in terms of their own organization and their portfolio companies. And again, it's gone from being something that they kind of feel obligated to pay lip service to, to something that increasingly they are starting to see the value of, um, but there is clearly a need on the part of investors to keep, by which I mean the asset owners, to, to keep banging the drum and keep pushing this onto their managers in ways that make sense for their managers. And you know, the the investment opportunity thesis um, I think is a much more case-by-case basis, right? It becomes part of my investment narrative for this investment that I want to make if I'm a hedge fund manager. You know, I think, yeah, emerging markets, just by nature of demographics, it's clearly more of a thesis. But it's, not, it's certainly not mainstream.
2: I will say that I've been going to these sort of gender lens, women effect sort of events and convenings for several years now. And a few years ago, I was one of maybe a couple or three men in the room. And now I can't say exactly, but something like a quarter to a third of the audience in these kind of events are men. So it's, it's moved out of the, you know, this is a women's issue category into this is an investment opportunity category, uh, and, you know, results to be determined. But I, I think, uh, it's a it's a big trend that investors would be uh,
0: well advised to, to take note of. How large a market opportunity is this?
2: There was a McKinsey report recently that said, I think, that if all countries, and I think they did it by region, if each country in a region had gender equality and gender uh, inclusion at the level of the leading country of that region, that that would add something like 12 trillion dollars to the global economy and that if all countries had gender equality and gender inclusion at the level of the the best or the most inclusive country in the world it would add something like 28 trillion dollars to the global gdp so uh at the level of megatrends, this ranks on the scale of you know the emergence of china
0: well, I think it is fair to say that any investing strategy that ignores over half the population is not a strong investment strategy. And probably for too long, uh, most investors historically have been men. Uh, most businesses have been led by men. Most board members have been men. Most executives have been men. Uh, and and so if you have uh, an investment approach that takes that as your, your benchmark, Uh, you are going to be missing out on a range of opportunities. And so gender lens investing just seems to be bringing uh, a sense of parity to the investment landscape that that helps, uh, in the long term, helps investors make smarter, long-term decisions by understanding the full dynamics of over half the population.
2: My standard line on this has been that we now know that there's a good reason why men have been keeping women down for all of these centuries, because once there's a level... Playing field, women basically kick men's asses, and uh, you know you can see that in all sorts of of, of indicators now about uh, school performance and, and graduate school admissions and graduate school graduations and stuff in the U.S. and it's it's a coming wave worldwide. So um, I, I think women are very well positioned to uh, to prosper in the in the coming world economy.
3: But to take the other side of the argument, right? It's not like just because you have women on your board doesn't mean you're, so, you're you're definitely a good company, right? There have been clear examples of women CEOs or women leaders, so I can think of one obvious one right now, who haven't been particularly good, whose companies haven't performed. Is she
2: running for president?
3: That, that was the one I was thinking of, yes. So none of this is a box-ticking box ticking exercise. And it's too simple an argument just to say, oh, well, women... Are better you know, women are different but ultimately they're equal
0: it's a different dynamic it's a different insight it's a different uh, awareness that's brought and and by not looking at it uh, you're you're uh, cutting yourself off from a, a lot of opportunity
3: and that creates an obvious mess of opportunity because it is you know it's it's an arbitrage right
0: David any final
2: thoughts I did think it was interesting to note that the woman of our panel was the most skeptical and that the male was the most or a male, one of the two males, was the most gung-ho. So um, maybe we have achieved a level of gender equity here.
0: Imogen, we'll give you uh, the final word.
3: I... I don't mean to be skeptical. I think, again, you need to come at all of these investments and all of these opportunities in the same way you would anything else. Um, But I would be remiss if I didn't mention Girls Who Invest, which is an organization I'm working with that is helping to get young girls and women interested in finance so that they can go on to roles in asset management.
0: So trying to increase that pipeline, that talent pipeline uh, for people in the investment management world to have uh, higher caliber uh, talent come into that space who happen to be women.
3: Exactly. So it's very similar to Girls Who Code, but for investing.
0: Very exciting. Well, we'll definitely have to check that out. And I think that does it for this episode of ROI, Impact Alpha's Returns on Investment. Thank you for joining us for this conversation about how capital is being deployed in pursuit of a better world. For much more insight and analysis, be sure to visit us at impactalpha.com and follow us on Twitter with the handle at impactalpha. Special thanks to our show's technical producer, Isaac Silk. For David Bank and Imogen Rose Smith, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks for listening.